Thank you. This morning's scripture is from 1 John 5, and you will need to turn to it in your pew Bible. So why don't you do that right now? And if you're online, you can um, just listen if you don't have one with you. So from 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that's overcome the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you may have heard of the term attachment theory. It identifies the importance of children developing a meaningful relationship with at least one caregiver, especially in the early years, so that they can develop socially and emotionally. And as an infant, having healthy attachment helps carry them through into adulthood. And it, having healthy attachment in that, those initial stressful situations outside of the womb help maintain, uh, establish a bond with their caregiver. It's the reason why many new parents, and particularly uh, adoptive parents, uh, want to spend the first phase together with their children to establish this healthy attachment through time spent, through physical contact, and through attentive responsiveness to them. And when there is insecure or disorganized attachment, because a child has experienced trauma or uh, neglect or abuse, they can often become withdrawn, distressed, or violent, not only in times of stress, but even when they are being loved. But, even when, uh, but when there is secure attachment, a child has greater chances of developing healthy relationships in the future having greater emotional health and a sense of confidence to further explore the world and return safely. 
Healthy attachment as a child helps a person navigate life more confidently as an adult. In today's uh, text, we, today we look at the final chapter of 1 John and in, on this beloved series. And we draw our attention to this final chapter where, where John summarizes many of the themes that are found throughout his letter. And that's why it's a little bit disjointed. But one overarching theme that rings throughout this letter is the sense of assurance that God's children have when they are secure in their relationship with the living God. And today we look at what it means to have confidence as God's beloved children. It's a beloved confidence. When we are attached well to Jesus, we find an incredible sense of confidence to face life with its inevitable challenges and uh, griefs and losses. And those who understand what it means to be God's beloved experience, one, confident belonging, two, confident obedience, and three, confident prayer. Confident belonging, obedience, and prayer. Now, beyond the need for safety and food, what is the most critical need that human beings have to have to function at their best? You'll see on the screen, I think, philosopher and psychologist Abraham Maslow developed this hierarchy of needs and concluded from his studies that the most critical need after human beings have food and shelter in order to be happy is a sense of being loved and belonging. For followers of Jesus, a deep understanding of God's love for us is what provides this sense of belonging, acceptance, and security. And the rest of the Christian life flows from this experience. In chapter 1, as Kendrick read for, uh, verse 1, as Kendrick read for us, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You know, John uses this term, born of God, throughout 1 John, and in his gospel to highlight the beginning point of experiencing life with the living God. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus, in the gospel of John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, if anyone wants to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. To be born of God or to be born again, those terms are interchangeable, are expressions, uh, uh, are, you, you may have heard those phrases in the past. Now, they, they, they express our sense of belonging, our acceptance, and where our security flows from. And I understand that phrase may be unfamiliar to many of us who have heard it in our modern ears, or maybe overly familiar for many of us who have been around the Christian church for a while. And perhaps some of us have negative connotations with the phrase because we hear, see it used in such um, odd uh, instances. We see it yelled on street corners at people or on billboard uh, signs or at stadium placards. But let's acknowledge, you know, some of us might cringe a little bit at the term, you must be born again. But that's likely attributed more to a communication and delivery problem rather than a problem with the, what the term conveys itself. You know, because of our reluctance to use that term, we may miss out on enjoying the beautiful truth conveyed in Scripture. It, in Scripture, to be born again describes this beginning point of one's relationship with the living God. Hence why Jesus refers to it as being born again. All humans, I think all of us say we, we were born, right? But not everyone is born again. Therefore, not all have experienced 
this belonging to God as God has intended for all. But what does it mean to be born again? John highlights it in three, gives us three signs in, in this chapter. In verse 1, we're told that everyone who believes in that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. The first sign of being born again is this confession and belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh, Savior, Lord, as John states in verse 1. Secondly, in verse 2, we, we find that we also know that we are children of God by our desire to obey God. doesn't mean that we're perfect at it, but there's a sense that, oh, God does have something to say about the way I live, and I want to know what that is. That's the direct result of being born and made alive in God. Third, for everyone who's born of God overcomes the world, in verse 4. John speaks of this last sign, that those who are born again overcome the world. Overcoming the world, though, doesn't mean that Jesus' followers win at everything in life or that they must hold positions of influence and power. Instead, overcoming the world is a sense of assurance that nothing in this world can take away our security as God's beloved child. Nothing in this world can take it away. If you've been tracking in this series on 1 John, John is speaking to a church that is concerned with this false teaching called Gnosticism, where those, their followers, adherents, believe that if you just get the right special revelation, then you're really saved. But here, what John is saying, all it takes to know you're secure in God is belief that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God who lived, who died, and who rose again. And that alone, when you put your trust in that historical fact, that alone is what can establish our belonging with God. And this belief in God is counter to the teaching of the world that John uses here. That encourages you to discover your own truth with special revelation. And in our time, the world might say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't matter which God you pray to. As long as you are a generous and loving person, that's the most important thing. But John here is saying that what you believe, and specifically what you believe about Jesus, is important. It's the beginning point of a relationship with the living God. And this beginning point of knowing God is where we understand what love and generosity mean. The hopeful truth of being born again is that it really doesn't depend on us. I don't know about you, but I wasn't born by my efforts. It required someone else <laughs> to make me born. Right? And so... Be, to be born again is a remarkably freeing truth because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God's actions and on the work of the Spirit in our lives. None of us can make ourselves born. When we're born again, God quickens our heart to say, oh, there is a God that I, I am in, uh, designed to live in relationship with. Oh, there is something in my life that separates me from God. And these are all signs of being born again. And though some Christians want to use the born again term as a label for a certain kind of Christianity, it really is the essence of what Christianity is. It's the beginning point of belonging to God. Confident belonging leads to God's children to confident obedience. 
Now, in America, I think obedience is a little bit of a fraught idea. We want other people to obey the rules. But when the rules seem to apply to us, we can come up with a lot of excuses, right? We want, uh, when rules are applied to us, we view it with suspicion. And even well-meaning people will question an order. Just look at what it was like last month with the Indigenous Peoples Day long weekend. You know, during that weekend, uh, families, at least here in D.C., the schools sent messages home to the parents saying, you know, uh, we encourage you not to leave the DMV region, but if you do, please quarantine for three days or five days upon return. So I want to find out how many of you thought that was a good idea for other people to follow. And I won't ask you to raise your hands for those of you who traveled outside of the region felt like you had a good rationalization why the quarantine rules didn't need to apply to you. We are products of the Enlightenment, where autonomous individual expression is considered freedom. And any rules or commands to obey that we don't like can be viewed as oppressive. Being asked to obey or to follow a rule is seen as a burden on our freedom. And even if something is a suggestion and not a rule, we can react against it. I know I do. When I walk up to a business now and I see the mask sign on the window, and I say, oh, they're going to tell me to wear a mask. But then it says, masks recommended, not suggested. I'm already reacting against a possible rule when the rule is just a suggestion. We feel that God's commands are burdensome when we view the rules that way. But John says exactly the opposite in verse 3. What does he say, say there? He says, this is how we... Oh, no, sort of verse... I'm reading the wrong... It is verse 3? Okay, yeah. God has to keep his commands. God, but God's commands are not... No, there's, I'm, I'm quoting the wrong one in verse 8, I think. It says, God's commands are not burdensome. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I need to read the Bible more. <laughs> God's commands are, in fact, not burdensome. And here's the reason. If a person obeys God's commands because they fear what God will do, or fear that they will be punished, or if that God's love will be withdrawn, then obedience is burdensome. But the motivation, there the motivation to, to obey is performance-centered rather than acceptance-centered. You see, we obey God because we already know that we have been accepted, not in order to be accepted. We obey because God loves us, not in order to get God to love us. That's the difference between religion and good news. See, religion says you perform, you obey, you do the right thing, then God will bless you, then you'll be successful in life, then you'll be happy. That's religion. But the good news, that's what the gospel means, is good news. It says if you believe the good news, if you receive the good news of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, then you're accepted. And your obedience, your uh, Everything you do from there is simply a response to being accepted and belong. So what do we do with that? We live, every time we find, when we find one of God's commands challenging, we react against it. Maybe we're, we're not believing the good news is really good news. 
That's one way um, that we, that God's commands can be burdensome. If we're afraid of what God will do to us if we don't obey those commands. But there's a second way that God's commands aren't burdensome. is when we realize that God's commands are for our good. And they aren't arbitrary. God doesn't want to produce a whole bunch of robot humans that simply do God's bidding. But if God is good and loving, then God's commands help humans live the most flourishing lives possible when we trust God in our obedience. Now, the fact that God's commands are not burdensome doesn't mean that it's always easy, right? We've read some commands like, wow, that's pretty tough, God. You see, in this life, on this side of the resurrection, we will all continue to struggle with the reality of sin and its effects on the world around us. But when we, uh, but if we, forget, when we forget that we have been completely accepted by God because of our trust in the good news, then no matter what we do, no matter what mess-ups we make, that doesn't change our status before God, except if we deny what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. If we trust the gospel, then we know that we belong. Burdensome obedience is obedience motivated by fear or judgment in, or, or to, in order to gain acceptance. And when we find ourselves responding to God's commands out of fear, we've forgotten the gospel. It's become a burden. Alternatively, when we find ourselves responding in pride and we rationalize why God's commands or a specific command doesn't apply to us in this specific instance, then that too is a sign that we've forgotten the gospel. If we think God's commands are arbitrary or not for our good, then we'll think obeying them is burdensome. In both instances, we have forgotten the good news of Jesus. Eve Tushnet, in her book, Gay and Catholic, and she spoke here last, uh, last year, uh, hi- helpfully highlights this connection of being God's beloved and obedience. She says this, Let me suggest that we start with the bedrock of our faith. This bedrock is not Christian morality. We care what Christian morality requires. We care so much that we will give our lives and our bodies entirely over to Jesus' care because we have first trusted that God loves us, that he cherishes us, that he seeks us out and will not abandon us no matter where we go. And she continues with the quote on the screen. Our obedience at its fullest is our free response of gratitude to the God who gave us breath and preserves our life. Our moral obedience or our struggle to obey, since a lot of us struggle and stumble with the stuff and with all these truths about God's love are true of us in those moments as well. Our obedience or our struggle to obey are most humble and pleasing to God, I think, when it flows from our certainty that we are beloved by an infinitely tender God. You know, confident belonging begins with uh, results in confident obedience to God. That isn't burdensome because the gospel is what secures our belonging, not our obedience. Confident belonging also leads to confident prayer. You know, in pastoral ministry, I have the opportunity to walk with and pray together with people through difficult circumstances. And a frequent comment I'll hear is something along like the lines of this. It's like, you know, I've been praying for this for so long. When will God come through? Does God even care about answering my prayer? But here in John, this text, John speaks of a confidence in prayer that I think we often might miss. 
Note how many times that, you don't have to do it right now, but you can just look at verses 13 through to the end, how many times the word no shows up. Three times in verses 13 to 15, four times in verses 18 to 20. There is a sense of confidence in prayer informed by our confidence in knowing that we belong to God. And this belonging is not based on what we do, but, but it is based on certainty in the name of Jesus. John begins in verse 13 saying, you may know that you have eternal life. But he goes on to say how that confidence in, of eternal life informs our confidence in prayer. In verse 14, what does he say? This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, God hears us. But to ask anything according to God's will is not just asking some, for some secret knowledge of God's future for us, as if asking the right thing to ask for and asking it in the right way that God will for sure come through. Here, asking according to God's will is a reference to the revealed will of God found in Scripture. If Jesus, the followers of Jesus pray according to what God finds pleasing in Scripture, then we find ourselves praying according to God's will. Our confidence is in the fact that God does hear us. God has revealed God's will in Scripture. And so when we pray according to Scripture, God will hear and God will answer. Think of a pr prayer in the context of a, a sports game, a sports event. Imagine two teams made up of players and coaches who are all faithful Jesus followers. And before the game, each team gets into a huddle and prays something like this, you know, God, if it's your will, help us to win. We've done our preparations. Help us to execute the game plan in your, accordance to your, your will. Let us win in Jesus' name. Amen. It sounds like the coaches are praying according to 1 John chapter 5, right? It's deferential to God's will. But the reality is, it's a game. Someone has to win. Someone has to lose, unless it's a tie, right? To pray according to the will of God is to pray according to what God's will has been already revealed in Scripture, not just for what you want to happen. Now, of course, we can pray for and ask God for what we want to happen, but it doesn't mean that everything we want to happen is God's will. By praying, but praying God's will may be, pray, may be something like this in the context of a game. You know, Colossians 3.23, everything, uh, whatever you do, do it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. Or maybe it's like praying Philippians 2, verse 3, saying, Do nothing out of selfish amb ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. I don't know how all this goes with you who are coaches. But that's praying according to God's will. You know, when I played on soccer on a team, a church team before, our theme verse was Ephesians 4, 23, which is, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But what, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit the, those who listen. That's a really challenging reminder on the soccer pitch. You know, praying with confidence according to God's will is praying according to what God, we know of God's will already found in Scripture. But in verse 15, we find some more things that God says. That confidence in God who hears our prayer is unpacked further. And here it sounds like, if we have confidence, 
And if we ask according to God's will, then we know we have what we're praying for. That's what John says, right? But consider what John has been saying so far. It can't possibly mean that everything we pray will get. As if God were some divine slot machine, if we just have the right belief, and if we just ask for the right thing, and all the things line up on the slot machine, that bang, jackpot, he'll answer our prayers. Because God doesn't work that way. Rather, God, what John is saying here is that when we pray, and we, when we know that God hears us, that is enough because the goal of prayer is communion with God. The goal of prayer is to deepen our relationship with God because that is where our ultimate satisfaction is found in life. See, if the goal of prayer is to get what you're praying for, then what you're praying for really has functionally become God. And it really doesn't matter whether you pray to the God of Christianity or any other God because what you really want is what you're praying for. But prayer is to help us get what we really need, which is God. Confident prayer is grounded in God's revealed will in Scripture. And we can pray confidently because we'll always get what we really need, which is deepening our relationship with God. When we pray in this way, we get what we need, we get what we want, because we get God. Confident prayer and confident obedience are both pillars in this life of a Jesus follower. And these two pillars are set in the bedrock of confident belonging. Everything flows from being attached well to Jesus. If we trust in the good news of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we experience confident belonging. And our life in Jesus is characterized by obedience to God and bathed in a life of prayer. May we all come to know the gift of this confidence that carries you through all of circumstances so that magnificent beauty and worth of the living God may be seen in you. Amen.